So our passage this morning comes from Matthew 27, verse 57, to chapter 28, verse 15. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his new tomb, when he had cut, which he had cut into the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite of the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have, an, you have a guard of soldiers. Go and make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. This is God's word. Amen. Please have a seat. I invite you to keep your Bibles open to Matthew 27. And uh, let's pray together as we... Uh, look at God's word and seek to hear from him this morning. Uh, Gracious Father, may we never get used to the incredible privilege of being able to open a book and know that the words on the page are the very voice of God. And that when you speak, you're speaking in accordance with your character, your holiness, your righteousness, your mercy, and your love. Lord, may we see you more clearly as we look into your word. And God, we know that in order to do that, we need your spirit. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work among us, opening our eyes, Lord, as we just sang and prayed together, uh, giving us ears to hear your voice, and changing our hearts, even while we gaze 
at your word and consider it. May your spirit be at work to make us more and more like Christ. What a sweet privilege it is. And we praise you for that, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, concluding a series through one of the Gospels this time of year uh, feels a bit like a clash in seasons. So last week we had a Good Friday sermon on the Sunday before Thanksgiving. This morning we have an Easter sermon on the first Sunday of Advent. And yet there's, there's something I think fitting about that because it reminds us that as we celebrate Advent again, the, the promise of God's coming, the sending of his son into this broken world, uh, we're reminded that that story was going somewhere. Uh, we're reminded that as Jesus came and stepped into his own creation as a tiny babe, taking up Israel's story, uh, taking up God's story, that he came with a mission to do that was always leading him toward the cross and resurrection. <clears throat> Excuse me. Last week, we, uh, we saw how it was actually through the cross where Jesus claimed his rightful authority as king of heaven and earth. He didn't prove his kingship by coming down from the cross, which is what the crowds were taunting him to do. If you're really the king of Israel, prove it by coming down from the cross. Then we'll believe you. But Jesus proved his kingship by staying on the cross, by giving his life as a ransom for many, by giving his life as a substitutionary sacrifice to bear our sin in our place. That's how he proved that he was really king. The cross is the climax of Matthew's gospel, and I think we can say with great confidence, it's the climax of all human history. And yet, as we turn the page this morning, we see it's, not the only, it's, it's, it's part of the climax, but there's another side to that climax that we can't forget. Because Jesus didn't stay dead. There were three people who died on the cross that Friday. Only one of them got up Sunday morning. Only Jesus. What he accomplished through the cross is completed through the resurrection. As scholar N.T. Wright says, Take away the resurrection of Jesus and you leave Matthew without a gospel. The cross is the climax of his story, but it only makes the sense it does as the cross of the one who was then raised from the dead. The resurrection is essential to the Christian faith. Wright continues, The central claim of the early church wasn't that Jesus was a great teacher, a powerful healer, an inspiring leader, or that he was the victim of of a gross miscarriage of justice. All of those were true, but they wouldn't add up to the early Christian faith in life. The crucial fact they believed was that Jesus had been bodily raised to life after being well and truly dead and buried. This is what they announced to the startled world. And you look through the story of Acts, where we see the early church preaching and the church growing, and that's exactly what we see. Not just proclaiming the cross, but the resurrection as well. You think of Peter's sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, that after Jesus was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, quote, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. 
Or as Paul is later preaching in Antioch in Acts 13, he says, And we bring you the good news, the gospel, that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. The resurrection is central and essential. Paul puts it rather bluntly in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. But it's precisely that point that the enemy and the world around us would like to convince us of. That Christ has not been raised. That we would be foolish if we believed such a story, much less to hang the entire weight of our hope on such a ridiculous impossibility. Modern science has helped us grow out of such ancient superstitions. We know now that dead people don't rise. Certainly not after three days. Maybe the disciples were honestly mistaken. Maybe... They talked about how Jesus rose in their heart or how he lives on in their teaching and later generations misinterpreted that and thought he was talking about bodily resurrection. Maybe they just made the whole thing up. But whatever the case, people just don't believe that stuff anymore. It's amazing that they ever did. That's what the world wants to convince us. But then again, if it's true, if Jesus did rise bodily from the grave on the third day, then that changes everything. That changes absolutely everything. And so, is there a basis for the basis of Christianity? Should we believe in Christ's resurrection from the dead? It's interesting, when Matthew tells this story, unlike John uh, or, or Paul later in his letters, Matthew doesn't go much into the theological significance of the resurrection. You know, John tells the story as kind of a deliberate echo of the creation narrative, and so Jesus is seen as the, his resurrection as the beginning of the new creation. Or Paul you know, has much to say about the theological weight and importance of the resurrection. Matthew doesn't go into that very much. His primary burden is simply to demonstrate to us the fact that it actually happened. That's what Matthew wants to get across. That Jesus really did die. He really was buried and he really did rise on the third day just like he said he would. That's Matthew's burden. He didn't just rise in my heart. He rose bodily from the grave. Take away the resurrection of Jesus and you leave Matthew without a gospel. And he's not about to let us do that. And the way that he makes his point in this story is kind of like a well-played game of chess. I don't know if anybody here plays chess regularly. Anyone? Not too much. The handful of hands, those are the people I know never to play with. I'm, I'm no good at the game of chess. When I taught Joshua to play several years ago, it was only like game three or four before he started beating me. And so, uh, and the reason I'm told is, is largely because I have no ability to anticipate my opponent's next move. Uh, the, that's supposedly critical to chess, being able to 
anticipate the next move of your opponent and know what your next moves are therefore going to be so that you can, you know, block them and, and, you know, surpass their defenses. Well, that's kind of what Matthew's doing in the way that he tells this story. He anticipates the different moves that critics and skeptics of the resurrection resurrection might take in trying to explain away the resurrection. And then he cuts each of those off at the pass, showing how they can't be true. He directly confronts one theory, that the disciples stole the body. But he undercuts multiple theories in the way that he kind of carefully tells this story. And so what I want to do this morning is for us to kind of see that game unfold, to to see the anticipated theories and Matthew's skillful check on each one of them so that we can believe his message with confidence that Jesus Christ really did rise from the grave and that really does change everything. So look again at Matthew 27 uh, verse 57, and, and we'll consider our first theory in trying to kind of explain away the resurrection, which is that Jesus wasn't really dead. That's theory number one. Jesus wasn't really dead. It's possible, some suggest, that he hadn't quite fully died on the cross. He was only mostly dead. And, and so that w- they took him down too early and He'd only swooned or fainted from blood loss or from shock or whatever. And then he came to on the third day and he walked out of the tomb. Ah. I mean, that theory's been quite popular for about the last 150 years uh, among critical scholarship and, and such. And yet what's interesting is that Matthew anticipates that theory clear back in advance by going into the details of what happened to Jesus's body after the cross. Look at Matthew 27, verses 57 to 59. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud. I think it's interesting that nobody just kind of came Uh, and, and took the body down themselves and then carted it off. Rome handed over the body of Jesus. They had to get permission before they could get access to it. And as one historian puts it, Roman soldiers and governors didn't go in for half measures when it came to carrying out capital sentences. They knew how to kill people, and they knew how to make sure they were dead. Joseph didn't just get the body He got it from Rome. Rome gave it to him. In fact, in Mark's account of this story, Pilate's surprised that Jesus has died so soon, and so he he actually goes to double-check and make sure that, 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 that he's actually dead before he hands him over. Jesus really died, and he really was buried. Joseph wraps him in a linen shroud and then John tells us that that Joseph and Nicodemus together went and applied about 75 pounds of spices to his body as part of the Jewish burial custom. He he died and, and he was buried. Had Jesus only fainted and then later awoken and come out, then as scholar David Strauss, himself a skeptic of the resurrection, as he famously put, 
quote, it is impossible that a being who had stolen half dead out of the sepulcher, who crept about weak and ill, wanting medical treatment, who required bandaging, strengthening, and indulgence, and who was still at last yielded to his sufferings, could have given the disciples the impression that he was a conqueror over death in the grave, the prince of life, an impression which lay at the bottom of their future ministry. So if they're going to go around preaching that Jesus has conquered the grave, that's not going to convince them if, if, if he merely fainted. It doesn't compute. It doesn't add up. Jesus really did die. But did he stay dead? What if they were looking for the wrong body? That's the second theory. They had the wrong body. Uh, ancient Jewish burial customs are pretty different from what we're used to today. They didn't dig a hole in the ground and, and put a body in a coffin and lay it there, much less uh, you know, burn it like their pagan contemporary nations at the time. They carved out graves, uh, tombs, I should say, in, often in the side of a mountain, that had multiple shelves in them and, and were used for multiple bodies. And so you'd put the body in there wrapped in the linen and the spices and all of that to basically for the smell. They didn't embalm their bodies. And, and when the body had decomposed, they would go back in, collect all of the bones and put them in a box called an ossuary. And that's how they would keep them. And, and so what if they were looking at the wrong shelf? You know, they go into the tomb and, and they... And, they're looking at an empty shelf where Jesus is actually you know, on a shelf over here with these other bodies, but they just got the wrong shelf and so they have the wrong body. Well, again, Matthew anticipates this move and he blocks it in verses 59 to 60. And Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. It was a new tomb. There, there, there were no other bodies in this tomb. There never had been yet. And so there's no way to confuse the body and its absence when they showed up Sunday morning and it was gone. So that doesn't work. But what if they simply went to the wrong tomb? That's theory number three. And this, again, is another popular explanation. Uh, when Carissa and I lived in Wheaton, uh, we lived in an apartment not far from the college campus, and one night we were awoken with a loud bang in the middle of the night at our door. And I opened the door, and there are two or three police officers standing there, kind of peeking around me, looking into our apartment. And kind of interesting. Well, they had seen from outside a broken window in our building and a ladder below it. And they had estimated that that was our place. And so they were looking to see if there were intruders in our place or... To, Find out if I was an intruder. Well, they miscounted. Uh, the neighbors, the young guys next door, had gotten drunk and locked themselves out of their apartment and decided rather than call dad, they were going to try and you know, let themselves back in. But, well, maybe that's what happened here. Maybe the women who discovered the empty tomb simply miscounted. They were one off. Maybe. But notice what Matthew says in verse 61. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. This is when Jesus is being placed into the tomb. So the same Mary and Mary who were at the cross in verse 56 had been at the tomb when Jesus was put to rest there on Friday. 
They knew where to go Sunday morning. They didn't get the wrong tomb. Moreover, if they had gotten the wrong tomb, it would have been pretty easy for Rome and the Jewish authorities to go to the right tomb, grab Jesus' body, cart it around town, and put Christianity to bed once and for all. So he really did die. He really was buried. And they really did go to the right tomb and found it empty. How else do we explain this? Theory number four, the disciples stole the body. That's what must have happened. In fact, the chief priests were afraid that this would happen. They were concerned, and so they went to Pilate, and they tried to kind of put up their own defensive maneuver against this. Uh, Look at verses 62 to 66 in chapter 27. Next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he's risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now, what's funny about this little scene here is that the chief priests and the Pharisees who rejected Jesus remembered what he said about rising from the dead when his disciples didn't. They're off hiding for their lives right now. Uh, Hopes crushed, basically. It's Joseph of Arimathea, not one of the twelve, Uh, who goes and and retrieves the body. And it's the women. It's Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. They're the ones lingering at the cross and going to the tomb, while the 12, now 11, after Judas, are in hiding. So the Jewish religious leaders didn't really have much to worry about in this case. Uh, In fact, Joseph is just as concerned to protect the body as Pilate was. He's the one who rolled the huge stone in front of it to protect the body against thieves or grave robbers or or whatnot. And that's the stone that that Pilate then had guarded and sealed with a Roman seal, which is basically kind of a way of saying, you break into this tomb, you're messing with Rome. You you, You now have the Roman authorities to deal with. And the disciples just saw what Rome could do. They were in no frame of mind to tickle that dragon. And so, and moreover, as one, one scholar notes, you think about, you know, to steal the body would run totally contrary to all that we know of them. The ethical teaching that they, that they have been passing on, their quality of lives. Nor would it begin to explain the dramatic transformation from dejected and dispirited escapists hiding for their lives into witnesses whom no whom no opposition could muzzle. What is it that could take somebody who's deathly afraid of being found out, who publicly denies his Savior three times, what can happen in just a few weeks that would give him the guts to stand up before all of the authorities in in the book of Acts and boldly proclaim Jesus has risen? The fact that he's risen. What else? But here's where Matthew kind of puts his opponents into check on this theory. 
he recognizes that this theory is kind of the one that's really prevailing in his day and, and leading on up throughout the early church. And so he exposes the real source of this story, not the disciples' actions, but actually the Jewish leader's conspiracy. That's where this story comes from. Verses, chapter 28, verses 11 to 15. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And the story has been spread among the Jews to this day. It's all about bribery when it comes down to it. The, the best argument that the Jewish leaders can come up with against the resurrection is to pay off the guards and, if necessary, pay off Pilate to keep everybody from telling the truth. So if Jesus really did die, if he really was buried, if the witnesses really did find the right tomb and find it empty, and there's no logical, plausible explanation of the disciples stealing the body, then how else do we explain what happened that morning? There's one more theory to consider this morning. Number five, Jesus rose bodily from the dead. Matthew 28, 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. How do we explain the empty tomb? Jesus rose bodily from the grave, just as he said he would. The king who was enthroned on a cross is the king who conquered death. But is this theory credible? I can't prove that to you, but I do think there are several good reasons to believe the truthfulness of this account. First, if you're going to make up a story about, you know, how your failed king rose from the dead and, and is actually victorious, you wouldn't identify women as your uh, star witnesses in that day. It's sad but true, but 
during this point in history, women were not considered reliable testimony in a court. You're going to have a hard time getting people to believe that Jesus is risen if the weight of your testimony hangs on a handful of women. And yet, all four Gospels tell us they're the first ones on the scene. Why would they do that? Because that's how it happened. They're not playing fast and loose with the facts. They're telling what happened. They're simply telling the truth. And second, they weren't the only people who saw the resurrected Christ. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15... Uh, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, all of whom are still alive, those, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. So as Paul's writing these words, this letter to the Corinthians, people who saw Jesus ro- risen were still alive, and could, they were around to be able to discredit what he's saying. So most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, Paul. So it wasn't just a handful of people. There were a lot of people who saw the resurrected Christ. Well, what about some of the variations among the different gospel accounts? You know, if we're supposed to believe this version... You know, for instance, Matthew says there was one angel, but the Gospel of John says that there were two angels at the tomb. In Matthew, the women seem to encounter Jesus on their way to go get the disciples. In John, Mary retrieves Peter and John, then she meets Jesus, and then goes and reports the rest of the disciples. So it seems like there's some discrepancies in the account here. Doesn't that discredit the story? It's been tragic to, to watch the events unfolding in Ferguson, Missouri, the last several months, from the death of a young man right up to the the rioting uh, this past week when the grand jury decided not to bring an indictment against the police officer. And when you look at the eyewitness testimony, which they've released for the public, which is rare but interesting, uh, you look at the eyewitness testimony and it's pretty conflicted. Was Michael Brown surrendering? Or was he charging? The stories differ. But nobody from that has concluded that therefore nothing must have happened. In fact, there are several key points on which there's no variation. That there was an altercation at the car and that the officer subsequently shot him. And so, we may find minor variations in the gospel stories of Jesus' resurrection. Which, by the way, I do not think... Uh, reflects so much contradictions as different levels of precision. And we can talk about what that means over coffee sometime. But, um, but no one from those variations can conclude, therefore, nothing must have happened. It's not how testimony works. Something most definitely happened, something so earth-shattering and category-breaking that no single witness was able to take the whole thing in. Christ rose bodily from the dead, just as he said he would. And when he did, he changed everything. N.T. Wright summarizes, This event 
changed the world forever. It announced, not as a theory, but as a fact, that God's kingdom had come. That the Son of Man had been vindicated after his suffering. And that there was dawning not just another day or another week in the history of Israel and the world, but the start of God's new age that would continue until the nations had been brought into obedience. New creation launched. We think about that. That the resurrection was evidence that what Jesus has been saying about himself, this entire story, it's actually true. It's actually true. He really is God's eternal son. He really is the long-awaited king of Israel, the true savior of the whole world. But the resurrection is more than that. It's the first fruits of God's new creation. It's, it's the down payment of the hope of heaven. It's the defeat of death itself. The greatest enemy of fallen humanity, Jesus conquered it. And he gives new life to all who belong to him. Eternal life to all who will turn away from sin and trust in him. And that's a lot to take in. That's a lot to take in. You know, we think of, you know, and I never get his name pronounced correctly, Copernicus or the, the, the astronomer guy. You know who I'm talking about? So the guy who convinced everybody that the sun doesn't actually revolve around the earth, but it's the other way around. That was such a category-breaking, mind-blowing way of looking at the world. It changed everything. This is far bigger than that. The fact that we serve a God who can raise the dead and who has started his new creation in advance and who will be faithful to complete it. And as we let that truth kind of hit us and sink in, we realize why the women responded the way they did in verse 8 to the announcement that Jesus had risen. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. Fear, because if Jesus is raised, this changes everything. God is so much bigger than we could have ever imagined. The possibilities of what he might do in and through us or or what he might call us to are so much greater because here is a God who can raise the dead. If you follow him, life will never be the same. There's fear in that. And yet there's great joy because if Jesus is raised, this changes everything. Jesus really is the king. He really is worthy of my wholehearted allegiance. Every square inch of my life, he has claim over. If Jesus is raised, help is near. I have a living Savior who is with me right now by the Holy Spirit. If Jesus is raised, opposition to the gospel will not succeed. God will reign supreme. If Jesus is raised, hope is real. There is waiting for me and for you a perfect inheritance kept in heaven, being guarded by God for the appointed time, 
in the promise that of my own bodily resurrection in the end when Christ returns. If Jesus is raised, then no matter what suffering and hardship I face today, no matter how ugly this life can get, no matter how horrible the things I might face, I have confidence that this will end well. That, that Christ has promised that life will have the last word, not death. Not for those who belong to him. If Jesus is raised, God really is making all things new. And he will be faithful to complete it in the end. That is category breaking. That is adjusting the entire way we look at and approach life. If Jesus is raised, we respond with joy and with fear. But ultimately, as the two Marys in the story, we respond in worship. In worship. We bow before Christ our King, to whom we owe everything, who has loved us and saved us at the greatest possible cost. Not because we deserved it, but by His grace. And, as we're going to see next week, we carry out His mission. Because if He is our crucified and risen King, then all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Him. And we have a job to do for our our risen King. Jesus Christ is raised, and this changes everything. Let's bow in prayer before our Savior. Lord, help us take on board the incredible scope of joy and truth and hope that comes with the fact that we have a risen Savior. Lord, I confess that so much of my life I walk through agreeing with the truth of the resurrection but not really letting it change my life slugging it out in the Christian life, doing my best to obey out of my own strength, messing up, making a mess of things, as though I don't have a living Savior, as though He hasn't sent His Spirit to give me the strength for every good work, as though He's not interceding for me right now before Your throne, claiming me as His own, purchased by His blood. Lord, forgive me, for belittling the resurrection in my heart. Lord, would you fill our hearts with the truth of that hope? Lord, for those among us who aren't yet sure what to think of that, would you in your kindness just continue to work away at us? Show us your truth and show us the difference that it makes. Lord, we need a God who is stronger than death. We praise you that Jesus Christ has conquered the grave. And Lord, I pray that that hope of the resurrection and that power of new life that is already at work within us would show itself in our lives and relationships. It would show itself in the ministries of this church. God, would it show itself in the ministries of our missionaries that we support around the globe. Lord, we think this morning specifically of Ian and Becca Rideout and their work in Niger. Lord, there is a dark land. Um, There are many, 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 many people 
who not only do not believe in Christ, but dishonor Christ, that say he's not the king. He did not rise from the grave. Lord, would you, would you show by your spirit the truth of your gospel as your servants preach your word in that land? Would you be kind to give new life? Lord, we pray for those among us who are hurting or re- recovering. Um, Lord, we think of the resurrection and, and the great promise that in the end, life wins our bodies, these broken bodies that don't work the way they're supposed to. We will receive a resurrection body like our Savior's. There will be no more sickness or suffering or pain. And God, we long for that day. And we know it's coming because Christ is raised. But Lord, even now, I pray just for a foretaste of that resurrection power in the healing of our broken bodies and specifically of those among us who are hurting. Lord, we think of Julio uh, Carasquello and, and surgery yesterday to remove his gallbladder. God, would you strengthen that man, put his body back together, restore him to health. Lord, we think of uh, Patty Gear and pray you would give her grace to heal amidst the health difficulties she's facing. We pray for Davis Bates, Lord, that you would continue to sustain him and Nancy as she cares for him. For Mary Boy, Mary Smith, for Ruth Hepp and Bob French as they each face a different kind of cancer. Lord, you are stronger than that. Would you bring deliverance? And we praise you for the progress that many have seen. And Lord, we think of Bob Norcross this morning and just pray your merciful hand on him. Lord, as he prepares to meet you most likely, God, would you be merciful? Would you give joy? Thank you that because we have a risen Savior, death is not the end of the story, that we have a great hope in Christ. Would you fill our hearts with that hope, even as we grieve? Pray specifically for the family as well, Lord, for CJ and Laura and Jonathan and Sarah. Lord, we love them. We hate seeing them hurt. But Lord, we know that you love them more than us. You love them more than we do. And you are good. And we have a risen Savior. And that changes everything. We ask it in his powerful name. Amen.